Well, good morning, everyone. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, that text that Matthew just read for us. Thankful for the team ministering this morning to us. Thankful for Matthew a couple of weeks ago, starting Romans 12 and getting this summer series off with an excellent message. And for Colin last week, guiding us through that passage about the spiritual gifts. And today, we go deeper into Romans 12, uh, looking at 13 commands. And if you felt like you needed a good, stiff uppercut this morning, and it's in one way, it's good that you're here, because 13 commands will certainly do that to you. It will help you realize the, the weight of the commands that God desires for us and his will that he tells us is good and acceptable and perfect but then we get into his will and realize that we're far off from it at times and need to be brought back into line with it. Well, this morning we're looking at these verses, 9 to 13, under the heading of genuine love. Genuine love. And Romans 12, 9 begins this way. It says, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. And I just was thinking about this. It's very important to go ahead and just admit that love today in our culture is rather hard to define. Um, it's talked about everywhere. And it's sadly and tragically mislabeled and misdefined. As a matter of fact, just about anybody in our culture today would see that statement, let love be genuine and would say, yeah, definitely. Let your love show who you really are. I mean, just live it out. I mean, often we will hear, you do you, and I'll do me, and don't let anybody tell us that we're wrong. Let love be genuine. They would see this and interpret it in such a way where they would find support, perhaps, for what their definition of love might be. And love... Definitely, like this word genuine, needs to be defined. Genuine, when we see that, often I think we think of it as true to yourself. And love means whatever is most true to yourself. Live it out and let others experience what you know is true within you as you live it out in front of other people. But sadly, this definition gets imported into what perhaps is the most famous slogan of what I think is a new secular religion. It takes God completely out of it, but nonetheless is a religion. And it's the expression that says, and you could probably say it with me, since 2016, it's been on yard signs all over Knoxville and all over the United States. Among the other statements on there is that statement that says, love is what? Does anyone see those signs like I do? How would they define that? How would they finish that? Love is love. That's right. Now, when Paul wrote this in Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine, he was not saying that love is love. He was not saying that whatever you feel love to be, just show that love. As a matter of fact, you know, when he says let love be genuine, it's not even originally a command as much as grammatically, the way that it's written, 
is like a subject heading. The literal words here, if you would translate them from Greek, is this, the love sincere. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense to us unless we see it as a heading for everything that is to come. Now, remember I said there's 13 commands here in these few verses, and it might seem tedious to go through them, but the way that we can organize them in a way I think that Paul does organize it is he says everything that's, everything that's coming, so this week in verses 9 to 13, and next week in 14 and following, is under the heading of genuine or sincere love. Love that can be shown to be without hypocrisy or pretense or the showiness of just trying to prove who we are. No, this love is different. As a matter of fact, in the Greek, you might have caught that word, the love sincere. Paul says this isn't just a portrayal of love that he's about to give us. It is the definition of genuine love. And I would go so far to say this morning that it's only in the lives of Christ followers can people see and experience genuine love. Now that seems to be a very exclusivistic statement and I realize that and I'm not saying that nobody else in all the wide world outside of the Christian faith loves. There are many types of love and there are many displays of love. But the deepest, most abiding, that, t- that stands the test of every scrutiny, that if you poke it and prod it and burn it and everything else, you'll see that it's genuine. You'll see that it stands the test of the most severe trials and emerges genuine. That kind of love can only be experienced by the watching world as Christians live it out. Now we saw in the first week that our very bodies no longer belong to us, they belong to God. And we are to submit our bodies daily to God in order to praise him in response to his many, many mercies that he's given us. God's mercies are the basis for anything that we do. God's great love for us is what compels us to love with genuine love. The world needs that. Every definition that the world gives for love will fall under the weight of a test. And what emerges is an emptiness that can only be answered by the love of Christ. So I would say again that only in the lives of Christ followers can people see and experience genuine love. And that puts enough pressure on you and me this morning, perhaps even to look at our own definitions of love or what drives us or maybe the lack of love that's in your life this morning, and to once again submit your own body and your own desires, your own will to God's will, and to see how he opens up genuine love in this text this morning. So let's go through it. I have five points, which is better than 13. And so I hope to lead us through this text in a way that helps you and me to stay on track this morning. In the first place, we look at this. Genuine love, if we're going to see the biblical definition, lives within boundaries. It lives within boundaries. We see in the text, it says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Abhor 
hold fast, evil, good. Now, it's interesting, right out the gate, the very first thing we see about genuine love is that we are required to stay in the lines of genuine love. There's evil and there's good. Now, those are not typical ways that people start to define love in our culture today. You know, typically, the, the reasoning goes like this. Whatever feels good must be good, therefore do that. You know, as I was growing up, the songs were, if it feels good, do it. If it tastes fine, drink. You know, that, that was a lyric from one of the rock songs when I was a teenager. I'm sure they've not gotten much better. The, the idea there is that you have a limited experience, and if you're going to live it out, then live out whatever feels right in that moment. The, the Bible, though, teaches us that just because something is normal doesn't mean it's good. Just because something feels right doesn't make it good. So often people start with that, though. They start with what feels normal, and then they work their way out to say, no, this is good. Similarly, this is what seems right to me, therefore I work it out, and that's love. You see, people start with the, the ethics, their beliefs, their, their system of what they hold a value to, and then they work their way to define what's true. The Bible works the opposite way because God works the opposite way. God starts with what's true and then works his way out to the ethics of how we should live, right? This is how God works. Now, people would still argue that, like we said at the beginning, love is love in this culture. But here's what I, I observe. When we see, for example, this phrase, abhor evil, that's one side of the boundary. Abhor actually means hate. I mean, it doesn't say to hate evil people. It doesn't say to hate people in general. It has nothing to do with people here. It's talking about the things that are contrary to God we actually develop and must develop an abhorrence to those things. Not just putting up with it, not just saying, well, you know, they'll be them and I'll be me and I'm not gonna bother anybody about it. A Christian doesn't have room for that in his or her discipleship and submission to God's will. We actually must discern what evil is in this culture and expose it for what it is. Ephesians 5 actually says, it is not right to continue living in the unfruitful works of darkness, but we are to rather expose them. I mean, it's difficult to do that in this time and day, and pastoral counsel is needed to help each of you know how to do that where you are in your schools and workplaces. But the reality is the Christians are called not to put up with evil, but to abhor it and sometimes to even expose it. Now, that doesn't mean we go around telling everybody how evil we think they are all the time. You know, if you went around in this room today and started telling everybody what you think about them all the time, you know, that wouldn't make for very good Christian fellowship. There is kindness and there is tactfulness and there is an approach to the abhorrence and the exposure of evil. But think about it in this way for just a minute. If we run with the line of, well, Love is love. 
you know, think about it in terms of this. If anyone would target your children, parents, in an attempt to groom them towards wicked ends, and you know what I'm talking about, if anyone would do that online or find them and target them, you would not conclude, well, love is love, and they'll do what they will do. I can't get in the way of love. Well, certainly the one targeting your kids is using that very line, and it's been co-opted from the LGBT community, and even some LGBT people are angry that those folks targeting little ones would actually use the line that they've used. But you actually have to admit that if you follow it to its logical conclusions, you'll get to the most dangerous positions. And like it or not, they need a better definition of love. What they need are the boundaries that God sets, abhorrence and holding fast. Now, I would say genuine love draws the line where God does. But I would also say that genuine love glues itself to anything that's good. And that's what hold fast actually means. It means you connect yourself together so tightly with what is good that while you are hating evil, you also are developing a taste for what's right and good. And your love can find expression in areas that will bring life and healing. It's not enough to say that the world gets the definition of love tragically wrong. We must go on to say, God's given us something better, something good. We have the chance to shine the light of what's love and the light of what's good for the world who needs that expression. Theirs is only going to lead them further into death. But the Christian community can shine the light in such a way where people can see clearly Jesus is the only way and the only hope, and his love is the genuine article. But I want to say that some of us, maybe who are attuned with discernment and sensitivity to the evils going on in our society today, can be tempted to stay there. We can be tempted to stay constantly on guard, but never moving in a direction of hope and help to those around us. You know, God wants us to discern the subtle approach of evil and to hate it. You know, I've been meditating on Psalm 119 over a period of days now. And in Psalm 119, I was amazed in two places just this morning, getting two verses that talk about hatred. And I do want to point them out, just so you can know that this isn't something weird that Paul's introducing. We read in Psalm 119, and of course I've been reading it on my app on my phone, so I can't find it when I want to get here. Psalm 104, Psalm 119, verse 104. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. And we read also in Psalm 119, verse 128, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. This is the conclusion. God, you're right. And not only are you right, I consider all your precepts in every way that you speak to be right. That's talking about the good. Therefore, I hate every false way. I abhor the way that will lead me away from you, God. 
right? This is genuine love. It's love within the boundaries. Take heart if you're stuck on the evil that there is good. Take heart that God's word is full of hope and help. Take heart that you can find your way through the, the tricky corridors of lies because God has spoken with truth and love and you can learn to see it for the genuine article that it is and abhor everything else that leads people away from it. When we hate what's evil, we actually hate anything that would prevent people from enjoying and knowing God. The next thing about love is this. Genuine love expresses family affection. Paul commands the Christians in verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. He goes on to say, outdo one another in showing honor. What we want to do in this is to see what Paul is talking about with love within the boundaries as it's working its way out. One of the highest goods that love expresses is family love from one Christian to another. There are two words for love here. Uh, they both have that root of Philadelphia. We know that Philadelphia here in the United States is the city of brotherly love. And that word, Philadelphia, is in this text. It's that word, brotherly affection. And the first word, love, is actually the word philostorgos, which is talking about an affection on the inside, a devotion from one person to another. So the idea that we get here is Christians in the local church are devoted to one another, and not only are they devoted to one another, but that devotion works itself out in the affection of a family member to a family member. Now, you know that you don't get along with all your family members. Amen. There are some of you that have difficult relationships, and even this morning, you could easily share some of the difficulties, perhaps this week, that you've had with your own family members. But at the end of the day, they're still your mom or dad. They're still your brother or sister. And there are things, or they're still your kids. And nothing's going to change that. You know, this is the type of family affection and devotion that Paul's referring to. At the end of the day, when tensions are tight between members of the Christian family, nonetheless, they're still family. And there is a devotion that needs to unite our hearts together across all lines, whether that be the color of our skin or the age of our bodies. And one of the things that this text says is that the norm for the Christian community is brother and sister love one to another, holding one another up, standing by one another no matter what. And so when I hear stories of people who have been a member of a church, a good gospel preaching church for 20, 30 years, and that despite all the challenges they faced, they never went to another church down the road, but they stuck it out because they loved the people there. I'm not saying there's never a reason to leave a church, but I'm saying just like a healthy marriage that makes it to like year 50, a church member that makes it to year 30 or 40 is an amazing witness to me of the power of God's grace in the lives of people. And I want to encourage you to have the stick-to-itiveness of family relationships. And I want to throw out a challenge 
perhaps to some of you who maybe have found West Park to be your home, but even this particular service or this place to be, this room perhaps to be your home. Maybe you don't know about the service or much about the service that happens across the way. We are one church, we meet in two places, but nonetheless, I think we miss the opportunity to find out what's going on in the lives of brothers and sisters across the way. I'm saying that to you here this morning because you're here. I would say the same thing over there if I was there. But one of the applications could be this. What if, if you are particularly young, you would find a way to work with those or get to know those who are particularly older? Right? What if you were in environments where you could get to know someone and perhaps those relationships could be formed across 40 or 50 years. Pretty soon, some podcast episodes from West Park are going to drop that feature Matthew Goldstein and James Lynch, our minister to the senior adults here and one of our elders. In their conversations, they're going to talk about various ways the generations at West Park can get to know one another. So listen to those that will be coming out. It's going to be like four episodes or something, unless they're really good, and then there'll be more, perhaps. I don't know. But I'm looking forward to what they have to say and the voices that they invite to the table and how they talk about ways that we can get to know each other. One way that you might get to know other people is to attend a service in the main auditorium, maybe once a month, where you could sit there and get to know someone, make it your, your point, a point, perhaps, to talk to somebody else that you've never met before, Maybe look for somebody different than you. Maybe a couple of you go together so you can have some encouragement. I'd need that. I'd need somebody to be vocal for me, and then I would feel comfortable entering into a conversation. Um, take advantage of these community service days. I know Colleen and Cindy, they're working hard to gather up a lot of opportunities for us to serve. And if you jump in and do those, you're going to find yourself alongside people that are probably maybe 30, maybe 40 years older than you that are hardworking people and that you could learn from along the way. Find ways to love one another and to care for one another with genuine family affection. And also, that leads to this. Genuine love honors others over self. Verse 10 says this. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. These four commands teach us the good path of how to practically love one another with genuine affection in the local church. We're commanded essentially to honor others over ourselves or above ourselves. It's a very common theme in Paul's letters. Consider Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know, we can read that and we can think, well, I, I don't count people more significant than me. You know, if you're honest like me, you probably think about yourself a whole lot more than you think about other people. Paul knew this, and that's why he made a big deal about it to say the same thing, essentially, in multiple letters. All the churches needed this lesson. And the lesson really boils down to this, because Jesus didn't hold back from you, because Jesus laid down his life for you, 
to the point of death on the cross, you now have been dedicated to Jesus and received by him as worthy, precious. He loved you to the point of death. Therefore, what do you have to lose in giving your life to serve Jesus by loving others and to have a fervency in your spirit? You see, the gospel is the key to helping us get over that hard jump from safety within our own feelings to actually jumping into someone else's life and risking loving them. You see, the gospel is that help that we need. You know, if we actually don't feel the zeal, you know, zeal is an enthusiasm. You know, people don't really like zealous people because zealous people make the rest of us look bad, right? But zealous people are enthusiastic people, and the Bible commands us to be enthusiastic. How? In honoring other people, actually holding them to be precious, loving them so intently that we value them like we value our most precious possessions, that this is our attitude one to another. And when we don't feel that, the way that we go about getting there to that enthusiasm and that zeal in the spirit to serve Jesus by loving others and honoring them above ourselves is to look at that person that we just don't want to serve in the church, that is so different from us, that we honestly, if, if you would pin it down, if I'd pin you down, you'd say, I just don't like that person very much. I find it hard to get along with them. If you look at that person and you say, Lord, as much as that person bugs me, or as much as that person has let me down, you never let go of me, and you pursued me and pursued me and pursued me when I was at my worst. As unattractive as anybody that I'm looking at might look to me in terms of their character or what's going on in their heart, I was even worse to you. Lord, forgive me that I am not willing to do what you infinity times over me was willing to do for me. And Lord, humble me. I need your help. You see, we, we repent as we go. And we serve, and we find that in the serving, we begin to feel a zealousness for the Lord and for the maturing and the growth of that person in front of us. It is possible to change. It is possible to love this way. In the fourth place, genuine love hopes in every circumstance. We read three commands. Rejoice in hope, verse 12. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Note that in these three commands, we see a theme. No matter the circumstance, we are to remain hopeful and dependent on the Lord. But should we view these commands generally like this, as in be this way about circumstances? Or should we view these commands in light of the general theme in this text of loving others? I really think that it's not talking or switching gears all of a sudden and saying, all right, now let's talk about your relationship to the Lord. Because right after this verse comes another verse dealing with our relationship with other believers. 
I think it's in the theme of this passage to say, we are to rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer in our relationship with other people. Because what happens when you outdo one another in showing honor, and when you put yourself out there zealously to love other people, you will be burned. You're gonna be hurt. And so as we look at these verses, I tried to think of a way to explain my own experience in this. I went back to 1 Corinthians 13, 7, and I see a similar thing here. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. See, love is just like that. You can't shut genuine love down just because you've been hurt. How many of, of you here would say, and don't answer this out loud, how many of you would tend to say when you've been hurt, well, I'm done with that person. They had their chance and they are done. And I'm not saying you don't have boundaries. Just like there are boundaries in genuine love, sometimes you have to put up boundaries with people so that they understand where they've crossed a line and how they need to repair the relationship. I'm not saying take abuse. But I am saying in our relationships, we are called to bear up under the pressure that even when a relationship seems broken or a relationship does not seem to work out, we remain hopeful in Christ who holds all things together and who works things out. And we remain patient under that affliction. When it says be patient in tribulation, it's talking about not necessarily multiple attacks, but a pressure that comes down on you and weighs you down. It's like a heavy load that you just have to keep bearing up under and holding and holding and holding and holding. You might feel like that in some of your relationships sometime. You know, I thought of two instances in my own life here at West Park. One time there was a man who came to me my very first year here. And this month, my family and I have been here 10 years. It's hard to believe, but amazing, we're thankful. Um, but that first year, I was really discouraged because a man came to me needing some help in his marriage. His marriage was in a really bad spot. He'd done some things, I'm not gonna name names, he'd done some things that he shouldn't have done. And his wife was not willing or ready to forgive him. And so when he and I met together, um, I, I tried to counsel him um, I, I made extra time for him. I really became personally invested in him. But at the end of the day, his wife decided to divorce him. And he ended up in discouragement leaving the church. Despite all of the help that I tried to help him with, and I began to question whether my help was really helpful, or whether this was even worth it to try to, try to put myself out there to enter into somebody else's life and to deal with them in this way. You know, we then came to another point. You know, not long after that, another brother came to me asking for help. His marriage was in a bad spot, and he too was estranged from his wife. And so I thought, oh man, not again. You ever get that kind of sense, like when you're helping someone or you're just talking through an issue where, you know, it didn't seem to work out really well, and you don't want to go through the same thing again? There's a certain type of love that we give that's not romantic love, but it's an investment of affection and devotion to try to help other people. 
And we get to the point where that genuine love just doesn't seem to work in that person's life. Well, I trusted the Lord and prayed, and I just said, Lord, I want you to help me because I'm fearful of getting into this again. But I know that you're faithful, and I know that you'll work. So although I wasn't really wanting to get into that, and this other brother definitely didn't want to be in that situation at all, I also learned that the verses in verse 12 were not only for other people, but were for my sanctification and growth, to rejoice in hope, to be patient in tribulation and constant in prayer. So this brother and I prayed. We went back to the word. We sought Jesus out. We began to hope together, even as we saw his marriage come apart and the divorce happen that he didn't want to happen. But at this point, where my counsel may have broken apart and I thought, oh man, my love just wasn't sufficient, or even maybe God's love and his help isn't sufficient, I saw the spirit kick in with the zeal that we were lacking. A spiritual zeal was infused in this brother, and I saw him trusting the Lord in new ways, hoping in the Lord even in the midst of a disaster and waiting patiently under that heavy affliction. And I was sanctified in the midst of it until ultimately I was able to be a part of their reconciliation and their remarriage and to see them faithfully serving the Lord today. There's, there's an answer to this. See, in your relationships, you need to be sanctified, made more holy, to become that living sacrifice. That doesn't happen automatically, and living sacrifices can put themselves up there and get off. If we're going to pursue the Lord's will, it will mean some difficult times. And maybe things are difficult for you this morning, but I would say to you, through vulnerability in prayer and dependence on the Lord Jesus, allow him to stretch you, even in your relationships that feel broken, that you can see growth happen, if not in other people, at least in you, as you come closer to him. Finally, in verse 13, Paul says this, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Paul wrote this letter during a time of much persecution. Believers all over the Roman Empire were forced out of their homes or killed. And those who managed to make it out alive had no choice but to run and to try to find some place where they could hide or be safe. Difficult times like these have the potential to strip us of dependence on ourselves. And when we have nothing else, we're forced to turn to God. Or difficult times can make us more dependent on self and say, I've got to make ends meet and I've got to do all I can to hold on to what I've got and to get more of it. And I don't have room in my life for other people and I don't have room for them to take any of my stuff. You see, what Paul wants us to do is to put our money where our mouth is as Christians, to actually put some flesh to the love and to get out into uncomfortable spaces like taking in a Christian who is running for his or her life that we don't know from the next person and giving them a place to stay. That we 
go to those who are in need and contribute a meal, contribute something that they need for their home. In some ways, I think we've lost the forcefulness of this by having the local church do all that stuff for us. And instead of then seeing the church do it, say like, well, people need something, my neighbors need something, I'll just call the church and the furniture ministry can help. Or that, those people over there need a little bit of help. I, I think I can call on maybe community care or maybe the biblical support ministries. You should do those things, but you should also partner with these ministries and say, how can I enter into that and be a help? Maybe that's a gateway God's using to reveal to you a bit too much dependency on yourself and calling on you to serve in a new way, to contribute to the needs of the saints, to show hospitality, to seek to show hospitality. Perhaps you know from other sermons here that hospitality, when it's mentioned in the Bible, is literally meeting the stranger at the gates. We go out and we meet strangers, and in this context, it is believers who are running for their lives that Paul was concerned about. But it's also others who have nothing in common with us and have no one else to really understand Christianity from unless they understand it from us. Remember I said, genuine love will only be seen through the lives of Christ followers. And if that's true, how can others see Christ at work unless they are in our very homes, sitting around a table with us? There is a story that my wife and I watched and then that my wife went on to read. It's The Hiding Place. It's the story of Corey Ten Boom and her family who worked diligently to hide Jews during the Nazi Holocaust in Holland. Corey survived imprisonment and torture and lived many years traveling around the world telling people about the stories that happened. Not as much, not as much is said about her dad, whose name was Casper. But Casper was a man of genuine love who modeled the life we see in Romans 12. Casper was a clockmaker and he worked hard to make a good life for his wife and daughters. Long before the events of the hiding place, long before the Nazis invaded Holland, Corey Ten Boom recounted that her life at home was filled with love, grace, and hospitality. Her dad would often read the scriptures to his wife and his daughters to help them grow, to love them well, washing them with the word. But then ultimately, also, they would foster many children. And the side door of the Ten Boom house was always open, and people would come seeking to get a bowl of Sister Betsy's soup that she made almost every day. In one memory, Corey shared how their family, right in the midst of the Nazi invasion, had invited a pastor into their home in hopes that he would take a Jewish mother and her small baby with him to his home outside the city limits to protect them from the Nazis. But the pastor was sadly not willing to risk it. Now, Corey wrote about what happened next. Her dad actually was nearby. And one thing I forgot to say was during the era when the Nazis first invaded, 
any of those countries in Europe, they would make the Jews wear a big star of David on their clothing. They had to sew it on to identify them. It wasn't an honor, it was a denigrating symbol that would communicate to other people that they were despised. Casper, who himself was not a Jew, got one of those stars and sewed it on his own jacket and wore it around everywhere in his city. Why did he do this? Because to him, identifying with those who were suffering, identifying with those who were isolated and were picked on, was actually what Christ would do. And as he overheard the conversation with Corey and Betsy and this pastor and the Jewish mother and her small young girl, Corey writes, unseen by either of us, father had appeared in the doorway. Give the child to me, Corey, he said. Father held the baby close. By this time, Casper is about 80 years old. His white beard brushed the baby's cheek, and looking into the little face, Corey writes, with eyes as blue as innocent and innocent as the baby's own. At last, he looked up at the pastor and said, you say we could lose our lives for this child. I would consider that the greatest honor that could come to my family. And perhaps you know the story. The Ten Boom family opened up their home and hid around six Jewish people behind a bookcase in Corey's bedroom for quite a long time. And ultimately, the Ten Boom family was taken away and the Jewish people survived, taken away to prison camp where Casper did die. What did I learn from this? What can you and I all learn from this? A heart full of the love of Christ, a genuine love, is willing to make sacrifices and even count those sacrifices in honor. Here's some things that we should do, perhaps. We should talk as families about ways to open our homes and our lives to those in need and pray about it. Would you do that? Would you talk about what you might be able to do to open up your homes to those in need and pray about it? I'm, I'm not telling you to do what the, the Ten Booms did, but would you pray about it? And we should love people and identify with them as people made in the image of God. I think so often we write people off because of their differences from us, even in this month that celebrates things that are contrary to the Christian faith. But instead of writing those people off, pray to see them as people made in the image of God and to love them in that light. And we should count it an honor to suffer on behalf of someone in need. For that is a small picture to the world of Jesus who counted it an honor to suffer on behalf of us in our need. And with that, we come to the Lord's Supper. I think that's a fitting way for us to enter into this time. The team is going to come back and just provide a bit of music to our time in reflection now on the Lord's Supper. Pray with me. And then let me explain what these are. If you would bow your heads. Heavenly Father, thank you. Your love for us is without any hypocrisy. It is sincere. It is genuine. Jesus, your great love for us is the most visible expression of love this world has or will ever see. Oh God, we, we long to be people who love like you. 
and ask that you would transform us through our submission to your word and that our lives would test your will and find it to be good and acceptable and perfect in the way that we love. We look to you now for the Lord's Supper as a reminder of that love. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need one of these, then we have people who can help you to get one and just raise your hand if you do. But inside of these little portable cups here is an expression of what took place when Jesus displayed hospitality to his group of disciples. As they sat around a table on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus took the elements that were there, the bread and the wine, to make a statement about what was about to come. And on the one hand, the bread, as it was sacrificed and, and broken, showed the broken body of Jesus Christ for us. And the cup, as it was drank, signified the blood of Jesus that was spilled. And the blood that would remind us that the forgiveness and the payment for our sin was accomplished. So we take the bread first. And with the assurance of Jesus, who said, if, if you belong to him, if you are among his disciples, if you have come to Jesus and accepted his sacrifice of his own self to pay for your many sins, to pay for all your sins, then you are welcome to partake of the bread. For as Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And as the Lord blessed the cup that night when he was betrayed, he said that he would no longer drink until the day when he would drink with us at the marriage supper of the Lamb, when he himself would return and spread a table in the presence of all his enemies for his people to sit around and to rejoice and eat and drink. Until that day, When we drink this, we remind ourselves that the blood was shed. And we remind ourselves that the king, even now, holds his hands out and says, come to the feast before time runs out. And maybe you today, if you cannot take this today, maybe what you need to do is to repent, to tell the Lord, I'm sorry for my sins. I see that you have died for me. Forgive me, Lord. And then the next time you could with us, take the cup and remember the words of the Lord Jesus who said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Amen, Lord. We look for you to come. We are thankful for your love. And now, help us to sing, aid us to sing the praises of our great King. In Jesus' name.